Hi, welcome back to the Judaism from Within podcast. I'm Simi Lerner. In this podcast, we look at the ideas from Rav Shumshan Rafal Hirsch, a master of articulating traditional ideas in the modern tongue. Beware the simplifiers. That warning, as one of my teachers once put it, has never been more appropriate in this day and age, especially when we come to the festival of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is coming, and there's always a temptation to display these events in very simplistic, black and white sort of ways. To give you an example, we are here to celebrate the triumph of the Jewish way of looking at the world over the Greek way of looking at the world. Jew good, Greek bad. Now, there's a temptation to go down that road for teachers, for educators, for parents, because you want to emphasize the truth and the beauty of your way of life. But what is often forgotten, that there lies a danger in this approach as well. Yes, you emphasize the beauty of your tradition, but there is a cost, and that will be this week's discussion. Yes, there is a temptation to go down the simplistic avenue and avoid subtlety and confusion and gray areas, but what we will hopefully show from Rav Shumshan Rafal Hirsch's point of view, that the road of simplicity is far more devastating and far more dangerous than the road of the grey, the road of the complex, the road of the subtle. In every other area of tradition, we appreciate that there is a nuance, there is a complexity, but when it comes to discussing other cultures in reference to Judaism, there is always a temptation to paint it over with a muck of simplicity. So my goal is twofold. One, I will try and present why I think this is dangerous and wrong, to present the Greek way of life as simply being wrong, and the Jews being right. And second of all, go through the process of Rav Hirsch's explanation about where exactly the problem lay. Why is this bad? Well, this is bad for a few reasons, but to name a few. First of all, it's a lie. It's simply not true. There is something very bizarre about criticizing the foundations of the Western world whilst enjoying and benefiting from it. It's like a Marxist or a socialist decrying the evils of the West and capitalism from Twitter. There is a performative contradiction there. He's acting in a way, or speaking in a way, but then acting completely counter to that. In a similar sort of way, to be in the West and enjoying the benefits of medicine, the benefits of science, and at the same time criticizing the root of where that all came from. So our first point, this clearly wasn't all bad. But that really leads us on to our second point, the educational danger of taking this sort of approach. Rav Shamshan Rafal Hirsch felt it was almost essential as an educator to introduce your students to other ways of looking at the world. Because without doing that, you'll never truly appreciate the worldview that Judaism is offering. In a similar sort of way, you present the Greeks and the philosophy and the ideas that the Greeks introduced to the world as simply being either silly or evil or wrong, it'll only take the time for the child to come out of your classroom, to then look what they said, to hear the ideas they presented to the world and how our society is structured off those foundations to know that you were either uninformed or dishonest. And that doesn't paint a nice picture of the traditional education he received. So we have our two points. One, the educational damage. And two, we have the dishonesty. So in essence, not necessarily a good road to go down. 
Okay, but now let's paint the actual picture. Clearly there was a problem. This was the first cultural clash Judaism had actually experienced. Yes, it became a physical conflict, but it began with a conflict of ideas. This is where Rav Hirsch offers us a hierarchy. A hierarchy of ideas, of archetypes, of patterns that we as human beings play out. To do this, to describe our principles, he takes us back to the very beginning, to the story of Noach, the story of the beginning of humanity. And Noach has three sons, and Noach gives us our first prophecy. But Rav Hirsch takes them not as individual people to be spoken about, but ideas that will permeate their way throughout societies and throughout individuals. You had Shame, Chom, and Yophes. Shame, which represented the transcendent. Name, Yephes, which represented culture, which represented the beautiful, the aesthetic, and Chom, which represented the sensuality, or the raw power from Chom, of heat. So you have these three ideas, the transcendent, the beautiful, and the sensual, the power that laid at the root of everything. And the prophecy that Noach puts forward, or the hope that he puts forward, that will play itself out, throughout the human story, is that Chom should always be subservient to his brother. But the world should be opened through the enlightenment of Yephes. Yephes should enlighten the world, but it should dwell in the tents of shame. Now this is truly key. You have these three levels. The first, at the very base of it, should be Chom, subservient to everything because you need the heat. You do need passion and sensuality, the raw force of power that drives us as human beings. But what opened Chom up? And historically speaking, this is very true. The ancient Canaanite religions were ones of dark, very physical gods. It was the waves. It was the sky. It was the sun. These were the gods of the ancient pagans, where man was crushed, where man was in fear. This was the world of Chom. But then Yephes came. Yephes opened up this crass level of Chom in the world, and you had the Greeks. This is where we can articulate the beauty that the Greeks gave to the world. They looked at humanity as being something special, the intellect as being transcendent, something that raised us above the world around us, and it manifested in their gods. They weren't pagans, they were polytheists. Perhaps a way of distinguishing between these two worldviews, for the ancient pagan, for the Canaanite, the difference between their gods and themselves wasn't a difference in kind, it was simply a difference in power. The gods were more powerful. That's why for them it wasn't such a big deal for Pharaoh to be a god, because Pharaoh was powerful. The difference wasn't in kind, it was in power. But then the Greeks came, and there was already a different sort of thing to be a god. It wasn't something that sat down with you. Zeus existed, but it wasn't the bear or the fish of ancient man. It was something more ethereal. It represented humanity. And here we see the first flowering of truth. They recognized the dignity and the majesty of to be human. Man's ability to be cultured, to be raised above the barbarian. And this was mirrored in their gods. They weren't pagans, they were polytheists. Many gods and every characteristic of humanity was represented in their gods. They looked at the world as something that could be understood. 
there was order. This allowed science to begin to flourish, or at least the first buds of science came about. That they were able to look at the world and say, I'll explain the world. I'll understand the world. This was the opening that Yefes did, best articulated by the Greeks. Now, of course, every culture has differing degrees of this, but the hierarchy that Rev Hirsch is pointing out that Noach was hoping for, yes, Yefes is essential. It is an essential component of the journey of humanity, but it can't stop there. It must be nested in the tents of shame. To be nested in the tents of shame requires the recognition of what is beyond polytheism, a unifying force of existence, this idea that's known as monotheism, or more recently, ethical monotheism, because part of that idea is a calling, a calling that the Greeks didn't recognize, something from beyond themselves, beyond our experience, that calls upon us along a moral mission, that we're expected of us, we are being summoned. This was the Jewish calling, this was the god of shame, Bringing Hanukkah back into focus, we can now appreciate what was so devastating about the Greeks, because we appreciate the good they had to offer. Yes, they opened humanity up. Yes, they took them on the next stage of development. But if you stop with just the aesthetic, with you stop just with the beauty and the symmetry and the desire to mirror yourself after something beautiful, then he who does not fall in line with that isn't truly worthy of being human. He who does not fall in line with what you consider perfection, or what you consider the ability to reach perfection, well then they're not truly worthy of rights. They're not truly worthy of dignity. You don't recognize them as being an another. And this manifested itself on the ground of how they treated other cultures, how they treated women, how they treated their servants. All this manifested on the ground. Yes, there was virtue, but there was no chesed, there was no gemilis chasodim, or loving kindness, for the stranger, for the he who was poor, less fortunate than you. That wasn't part of their worldview. There wasn't that calling to mirror something moral that was greater than yourself, that was calling, demanding, the language of command was absent. So, in a way, your desire to become virtuous for the Greeks was just another expression of narcissism. A desire to feed the self, not because of the actual demand another puts on you by being in need. This is just limiting ourselves to one area, that that way of looking at the world had an effect in how they acted. So on Hanukkah, we're not rejecting that which is Greek, we're rejecting that which didn't develop to something higher, that which stayed stagnant, if you will. A way of phrasing it succinctly is that the Greek worldview was a means to a greater ends, not the ends in of itself. That's not where the journey stopped. And if you thought the journey stopped there, then there were bad manifestations on the ground. So in summary, we spoke about the danger of oversimplification. We put it on the table about the danger of both its dishonesty, but also its danger as an educational method. And we spoke about how Rav Hirsch gives us a hierarchy of ideas, starting with Chom, working its way up to Yefes, and then developing itself into shame. From the raw sensual, to the beautiful, to the transcendent, to the calling from beyond. All should be, in the language of the Psukim from Noach, nested in the tents of shame. This gives validity to the process, this gives validity to the ideas that were put forward by the Greeks, but at the same time, has a strong word of criticism and caution, that we can appreciate what we're rejecting, 
when it comes to Hanukkah. So when we light the candles and we're representing this light that's shining forth, this light that Judaism is shining to the world, we can understand what we're trying to light up. Not that that which doesn't fall in line with us is just wrong by definition. No, there is a need for the Jewish light. And that is what we're representing with the Menorah on Hanukkah. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful Hanukkah and a wonderful week. And if you want to hear other interesting podcasts of other interesting thinkers, check out intentionaljew.com. Interviews, different podcasts, and different topics. Thanks a lot.